We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done. Now on to the show. and on the show this week we are looking at China and asking if the UK government is too weak on dealing with the Asian powerhouse. Plus I'll be speaking to author, human rights campaigner and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. Chinese philosopher Confucius once said in one of his many proverbs, By three methods may we learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is the bitterest. In recent years, the government appears to have been developing some sense of wisdom when it comes to dealing with China. However, that development has not always been as successful or quick as one might hope. Successive Prime Ministers have reflected on the golden era of Sino-British relations David Cameron tried to usher in, not always so nobly. During the Covid-19 pandemic, the West imitated China's models of lockdowns, an approach which had never been attempted before and, like with all temporary government interventions, was easy to implement and very difficult to end. As for experience, that's something Rishi Sunak's administration is dealing with at the moment, and recent experiences with China have been a bitter pill for the government to swallow. For the coronation of their majesties the king and queen next week, President Xi Jinping has demonstrated the utter contempt he has for the United Kingdom and the people of Hong Kong by sending Hang Zheng, the vice president of China, as his representative. Han was promoted to vice president in March, having served as first vice premier, where he orchestrated the clampdown on democracy in Hong Kong through the infamous national security law and through totalitarian electoral reforms. MPs and peers are outraged by this, but the silence from His Majesty's government is deafening. The UK has not had a clear position on China since the Cameron years, which was essentially to make us more or less totally dependent on President Xi's tyrannical regime. With his successors, an element of strategic ambiguity has been at play, 
And this week, Foreign Secretary James Cleverley delivered the Mansion House speech, which is one of the most important foreign policy events every year. This year, Cleverley used his speech to set out the UK's relationship with China. In a social media clip posted to promote the speech, this is the Foreign Secretary setting out the UK's position. Some people want me to define our relationship with China in one word. I'm not going to do that, and here's why. We can't reduce our approach towards a country with a fifth of the global population, thousands of years of history, and the second biggest economy in the world to a single soundbite. So this is the UK's approach to China. We're going to hold China accountable when they break the rules that they've signed up to. We're not going to keep quiet when China locks up a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and we're always going to defend our values. But we can't just ignore China. To disengage would be an act of weakness, not strength. We're not going to be able to influence China if we cut ourselves off from them. We won't shift China on climate change or on anything else if we lock ourselves out from the relationship. This isn't easy, but our approach is clear. Working with our friends and allies around the world, we're going to engage and influence China whilst being completely realistic about what we're dealing with. And our national security will always come first. I've met James Cleverly a number of times and have a lot of respect for him. He's clearly very knowledgeable about his brief, and has, so far, been a more successful foreign secretary than some of his more recent predecessors. However, I think he's wrong when it comes to China. His position is effectively the same as that of the European Union, which is business as usual, but with a bit more caution. There was one part of his speech which I found quite shocking. Building on the social media clip teasing the speech, Listen to what the Foreign Secretary said about how the UK should engage with China. Our task is to shape the course of future events, not to succumb to fatalism. And we must face the inescapable reality that no significant global problem, from climate change to pandemic prevention, from economic instability to nuclear proliferation, can be solved without China. To give up on dialogue with China would be to give up on addressing humanity's greatest problems. Even worse, we would be ignoring salient facts vital to our safety and to our prosperity. I don't think anyone would seriously call for a total severing of, of ties with China. However, these comments are naive at best and ignorant at worst. China has been a major factor in causing these problems. On climate change, China has produced more pollution in the last eight years than the United Kingdom has during and since the Industrial Revolution. On pandemic prevention, COVID-19 originated in China. The authorities refused to grant independent scientists access to Wuhan and the Institute of Virology, and there, there is a very strong body of evidence to suggest that the virus was in fact a lab leak. On economic instability, China is forcing poorer countries into debt traps through infrastructure loans with unsustainable repayment rates. And on nuclear proliferation, China is actually increasing its nuclear arsenal as other countries consider reducing theirs. It's not like China's behaviour is anything new or unfounded. President Xi's iron grip has been tightening for the last five years, since his 2018 governmental reforms, which saw presidential term limits abolished and a significant increase in his personal powers. The writing has been on the wall since 2018, 
when British human rights campaigner Benedict Rogers, who is my guest this week, was the first Westerner to be removed and barred entry from Hong Kong since the UK handed it over to China in 1997. Since then, democracy has been completely destroyed in Hong Kong, and the highly controversial political reforms and national security law, which sparked the inspiring pro-democracy protests, has made the territory into an effective colony. Other than press statements and the occasional speeches in Parliament, the, Uni the United Kingdom government has not held China accountable. In calling out the persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, a number of British MPs and peers have been sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party. An independent tribunal, chaired by the highly distinguished and em em eminent Sir Geoffrey Nice Casey, the chief prosecutor of Bosnian war criminal Slobodan Milosevic, deemed that the actions by the CCP in Xinjiang constitute genocide, a determination endorsed by the Trump and Biden administrations, the US Congress and the British, European, Canadian, Dutch and French parliaments amongst others. Despite this, the UK government refuses to call it genocide and despite condemning the actions in Xinjiang, has not held China accountable. As for China's place in the world, President Xi is offering to negotiate a peace agreement in the Russia-Ukraine war. Given that China is escalating tensions with Taiwan and creating what James cleverly called in his speech, quote, the biggest military build-up in peacetime history, notwithstanding the clampdown on Hong Kong or the persecution of Uyghurs, it is staggering that the very notion of Chinese involvement in a peace deal is even being considered. The UK has led the international response in supporting Ukraine, whilst recently leaked documents have proven that China has been secretly arming Russia. It would be the single greatest failure of the West to allow China to successfully negotiate a peace agreement in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Whilst we might not like it, James Cleverly is right in saying that we need to engage with China. They are the second largest economy in the world and the main trading partner for the majority of countries, ours included. But this does not mean that we must put accountability to one side, simply in the name of business. If Brexit meant anything, it was the ability to forge our own path in the world and make friends and allies with other countries. Liz Truss was onto something in calling for an economic NATO to counter China. We can work with neighbours to compete with the Asian Leviathan. However, it requires a courage our leaders sadly do not have. Until the UK and her allies get the confidence to sanction Chinese officials and businesses and actually hold the CCP accountable for dismantling Hong Kong's democracy, for committing genocide against the Uyghurs, for threatening to invade Taiwan, and for so many more grotesque acts, we will remain dependent upon them until it no longer suits them. Based on current trends, China is expected to become the world's largest economy by 2030, and the day that happens will be a very dark day for the world. So, please get in touch and let me know your thoughts. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the UK government too weak on China? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183 Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back after this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. 
The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back. Let's hear what you have to say. And our first message of the day comes from Rebecca. Rebecca says, Nathan, you present a very compelling pitch for why we need to be combating China's power and essentially seeing them as the enemy, not our friends. So I ask you, why would we even want Xi Jinping in our country for the coronation? Has Kim Jong-un been invited to the coronation too? On one hand, MPs are disgusted that Xi Jinping is sending someone else in his place to the coronation. And on the other hand, they want the UK to have as little to do with China as possible. We can't have it both ways. Either we are at war with China and we need to cut our dependency from them altogether, or we are chums with them and we have a right to be offended by Xi Jinping not attending the coronation. The current stance of our MPs, and, as, and you as well, Nathan, just doesn't make sense to me. Well, thank you for that message, Rebecca. And when it comes to China, because of their place in the global economy, because of their place in the world, you know, there's so many issues and so many problems we've, we face in our world. It, a lot of things tend to be very binary, very black and white. But when it comes to China, it's a grey area. And policy has to be much more nuanced because whilst we concede the absolute atrocities that the regime is committing, we, we must absolutely call those out 100% and sanction the individuals perpetrating them. However, they are still our biggest trading ally, they are still a uh, partner, I should say, rather than ally. They are our uh, biggest, one of our biggest trading partners. Uh, they are the biggest trading partner for so many other countries around the world. They are the second largest economy. And as I said, it's widely expected that by the end of the decade, they will be the world's largest economy, overtaking the United States. So we have to be realistic in, in saying that actually we can't just sever all ties completely because yeah, it would be an act of immense self-harm to us, but also it would be an act of self-harm to the Chinese people. Because I think a lot of the time when we end up discussing China, we tend to think of it almost as, as an abstract. We have China as the as bracket term, when in fact we really need to focus our attention on the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. Because the people of China, those living their lives day to day, you know, they're not to blame for this. It is their government, it is their regime. It is the Communist Party that has been ruling over them for decades, that has caused so much hardship on them and has been committing these absolutely hideous acts against the peoples of Hong Kong in Xinjiang in so many other parts of the country. And so when it comes to our relations with them, there does have to be a really delicate act taking place. And when it comes to the coronation, it's very clear what Xi Jinping thinks of the UK by sending Han Zheng, the man who basically destroyed the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which established the principles of democracy and freedom in Hong Kong. But there were so, so many other people he could have sent in his place. I mean, the, the, the Chinese ambassador to the UK, for just for example. And so on, on your point about actually inviting to the coronation, coronations are a state occasion. You know, they are a, an event of state. It would be the same if uh, we were a republic as well, and it would be the inauguration of a new president, just for, for example. So 
any ambassador who or nation that is represented at, to use the archaic term, that represented at the court of St. James, which is the, the diplomatic corps, the uh, institution which is representing the uh, nations which have embassies and diplomatic relations with the UK, they, the, the heads of state of those countries will get an invitation because it's a state occasion. But uh, as is a custom with coronations, heads of states tend not to uh, come. They always send a representative, and hence why it was uh, seemed controversial at the time that President Joe Biden wouldn't be attending. It's n it's not tradition that U.S. presidents do, and this, and I extend the same to North Korea as well. Again, they operate a hideous regime, and as a as a custom, Kim Jong Un would have been in, uh, sent an invitation, but ultimately it will likely be his ambassador that comes. That, that's not a, a statement about uh, endorsing what happens in those countries. It's just a, a fact of state occasions and diplomatic principles and norms. But your, your point is very valid, though, Rebecca, in saying that if we really did care about human rights, if our government did care about human rights for the people of Hong Kong, for Xinjiang, in Taiwan, so many other parts of China, then because of this absolute slap in the face of having Han Zheng be sent as President Xi's representative, I would argue that James Cleverly should disinvite them, revoke the invitation and give it to someone more rewarding. A lot of community heroes and recipients of the British Empire Medal, you know, they're being represented. Why not give that invitation to one of those people? But thank you for that message, Rebecca. And I appreciate that the position from the government and perhaps from me can seem quite confusing. But with China, because it's such a complex issue, because there are so many caveats and other areas that need to be considered, it has to be a very nuanced policy, it has, and it's quite a grey area. But thank you for that message. Our next message comes from Alex, who says, I don't want to sound weak on China myself, but I think we need to be very careful with how we act towards China, because they hold so much power. At the end of last week, the call between President Zelensky of Ukraine and President Xi of China was described as a potential game-changer in the war. This is not a country in the corner causing trouble that we're wagging our finger at. Maybe that was the case 10 or 20 years ago, but now China is a highly advanced country, perhaps the most powerful country in the world already. Whatever Xi Jinping does makes headlines, and he is agenda-setting. And importantly, he disagrees with the prophecy of Western life. So I think that any calls for the government to be strong on China and push them into a corner, that's just not going to work. Well, thank you for that message, Alex. And you're right, China's position has, in the world order, in, in geopolitics, it has absolutely shifted. Of course it has. And, you know, we are seeing them as a major competitor and player in the world economy. But that doesn't mean we can't still hold them accountable. And I, I keep citing Hong Kong because that's an issue where the United Kingdom has a stake. Okay, the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration that was signed in the 1980s by Margaret Thatcher you know, that established the principles of a handover of Hong Kong. And, you know, regular listeners know I'm a big fan of Margaret Thatcher. But I really do think that was her biggest mistake in her 11 years in office. Because she did not seek the necessary safeguards that would have been needed. Essentially, she took the, the Chinese Communist Party at, at face value. She uh, took them at their word, which, based on their track record, is not something you can do. There needed to be more ironclad principles and agreements set out in there. And also clauses for accountability on Hong Kong as well, because the erosion of democracy, it, it was always going to happen. But I don't think anyone anticipated it to be quite as quick or as sudden as it has been over the, the last five years or so. 
And again, on Xinjiang, you know, the United Kingdom has been at the forefront of international justice when it comes to making declarations of genocide. The UK was involved in setting up the International Criminal Courts and International Courts of Justice, the courts which made the declarations of genocide during the Holocaust, for what happened in the, the Bosnian War as well, in other occasions. And uh, as I meant, said in my opening remarks as well about um, Sir Geoffrey Nice Casey, a, a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, jurist and lawyer who I had the immense pleasure of meeting recently. You know, he, he is the world's leading authority on genocide, I, I would argue. And for him to make that assessment as well of what's happening in Xinjiang as a genocide, that should be a, a real kick up the backside for the government, for the Foreign Office to actually take action on this. Now, we can't just do blank, blanket actions on China and just sanction the whole country because that impacts the people. And the, again, the, the people are not at fault in this situation. It's the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government. And so in 2021, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, Dominic Raab was Foreign Secretary, they introduced this system called Magnitsky, Magnitsky sanctions, which are a system of sanctions which are applied to individuals and to institutions or organizations for specific reasons. And we've already done this on a number of occasions following the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. A number of individuals have been sanctioned, including Vladimir Putin, I think um, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov as well. Um, you know, as a couple of the uh, very high profile uh, banks in Russia as well, they've been sanctioned using this system, the Magnitsky sanctions. But yet they've only been used very, very sparingly in uh, in in the situation with China. Uh, I don't think the um, architect of the uh, gen genocide, I, I, I would call it a genocide based on the body of evidence, the genocide of Uyghurs, the uh, uh, provincial governor in Xinjiang, who has been overseeing the mass incarceration of these people. He, he's not been sanctioned. Why not? In fact, it was only recently that the governor of Xinjiang was supposed to visit the Foreign Office, visit London, meet with the Foreign Secretary and for uh, other uh, ministers, business leaders. And it was because of human rights campaigners that that visit was cancelled. You know, it, it was an embarrassment for the government to even be caught out planning to entertain this man who is, by all accounts, a criminal and overseeing these horrific crimes of humanity. So thank you for that message, Alex. And whilst I appreciate what, what you're saying, that there are ways to do it. There are ways to be holding China accountable. And by being very targeted with it, I think we can still keep them close, but still keep them accountable as well. So thank you. Our next message, our next message comes from Nina, who says, as you said, Nathan, we are nearing that turning point when it comes to China. We are nearing that moment where either China is the leader of the world and we all have to do what it says, or we show our dominance, puff out our chest and say that we aren't going to put up with them abusing their power. Right now, the government are sleeping at the wheel on China and they are, based, uh, they, are, they are on basically every issue and letting China get away with literal hell without any consequence whatsoever. The more we let them get away with it, the less we can speak out about China in the future because it will be too late. The government must be tougher on China we must demand sanctions, we must demand tougher language, and we must come together with our allies to show China that they cannot run the world without checks and balances. Well, thank you for that message, Nina, and I completely agree with you on, on this. And in fact, th just today in the Sunday Telegraph, they had a, a, an interview with James Cleverly off the back of his big speech. And 
in, in the in the interview, he was saying that uh, I I won't be having tea and biscuits with the Chinese whenever he meets them. He will always be standing up for uh, human rights. He will always be championing the causes of Hong Kong and the the Uyghurs. But when you actually get into the the wording of uh, what he he told the Telegraph, I I just found it bizarre actually, and a real inconsistency with what what needs to happen. Because we, we've seen a number of British MPs and peers across party selection as well. It's not exclusively Conservatives, although it is mostly Conservatives who have been sanctioned by the Chinese government. You know, we, it, it's a number of individuals who have been sanctioned. But there is one particular line that I, I did want to point out. And in the interview, James Cleverley says, Whenever I've had a conversation with a Chinese minister, whether face to face or over the phone, I have always highlighted the plight of the Uyghur Muslims. I've always highlighted their posture towards Hong Kong. Okay, so if that really is the case then, if he's highlighted the plight of the Uyghurs, why hasn't he done anything about it? On the readouts that we get from these diplomatic calls, the trans partial transcripts or overviews of what's discussed, it, it makes up perhaps half a sentence. Other things, trade, visits, um, international affairs, whatever, they're, they're always dominating. But when it comes to the human rights element, you know, it's just a, a quick bullet point, move on. And again, their posture on Hong Kong. Well, I, I would go as far, and perhaps it's bold for me to say, but I would say completely crushing and destroying the basic principles of Hong, of Hong Kong's democracy is a bit more than posturing. Posturing is presenting an image of what you want to do. Posturing is doing something to project a certain ideal that you want the world to see. What China is doing is actually crushing the very basic human rights of its people. That is not posturing. And so it's very disappointing to read this from James Cleverley because, as I've said, I've met him before. I've spoken to him a number of times, spoken to him about China. He's always been very knowledgeable about the brief, very clear on what he wants to see. And especially when Liz Truss was prime minister for that brief time, they were fully prepared to reclassify China as a threat. Now that Rishi Sunak's in number 10, uh, that, that has gone out the window. The uh, integrated review of foreign policy, that big landmark document was rewritten and slightly reclassified China, but not very much. And it, it's, it's very saddening to see that we could have taken the right stance on this, but we chose not to for the sake of business. But thank you for that message, Nina. Our next message comes from Blake, who says, We have seen the power of sanctions when it comes to Russia. The world, except for China, came together and said that not just do we condemn Russia's actions, but we're going to do what we can to make them stop. The world nearly brought Russia to bankruptcy, for goodness sake. But yet we are not going to do anything for the country that has not just been supporting them in the distance, but actually propping them up. China is an issue that the British government have an opportunity to make movement on because there isn't the risk of an on-the-ground war, unlike with Russia. And it would show that they are actually thinking about the future and the sort of world we want to live in. But nope, they're all sanctioned out, it would seem, and are not making a difference at all. Well, thank you for that message, Blake, and I completely agree with you on that. You know, we saw in that coordinated effort when the Russia-Ukraine war first started, the, just the effect that sanctions can have on the Russian leadership on major businesses and it it was in incredible to see the potential that could have happened and especially the move on uh, removing Russia from the SWIFT international payment system you know that that was a game changer it really was and Russia had no other choice but to seek alter alternative forms of income 
that's where China steps in. And in uh, recently leaked documents from uh, the US that uh, the Washington Post has done a very good job in doing write-ups of these documents, it's proven that China has been secretly arming Russia in this war. You know, we, we saw Russia going all out at the very start of the war. They, they then slowed down because they ran out of people and ammunition. They then increased their draft to conscript more people. And China has been secretly arming them. We have seen that. So why they are being allowed anywhere near a peace negotiation is, I would argue, morally bankrupt from the West. And if they are allowed to do that successfully, then that would be just the most tremendous failure. But even on the smaller scale in the UK, we need to stand up to China in our universities. You know, Confucius Institutes at about 30 universities in the UK. There are major concerns with uh, those institutions siphoning off intellectual property, sending it uh, illegally to Beijing for analysis. And it is the theft of intellectual property. We've even seen malware doing that in Australian Confucian Institutes. The, the, those uh, CIs have been uh, joining the Wi-Fi networks, installing malware and rerouting uh, academic papers, research, very uh, secretly uh, closely guarded. Um, uh, the closely guarded uh, research has been taken by these CIs, by these Confucius Institutes uh, to Beijing for an analysis and research. And again, we can see there's a threat here. We can see there is a danger domestically in our universities. Tom Tugendhat, the security minister, he's pledged to close these uh, these Confucius Institutes. Liz Truss pledged to do it. Rishi Sunak has. About six months on since that promise was made, nothing has changed. So thank you for that message, Blake. And we, we have a potential to do something here. We're just not doing it. And a reminder that to get involved, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Radio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the UK government too weak on China? To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost and the standard network rate supply at 07807183538. Email us station at wizardradio.com and all of our contact details can be found on our websites at www.wizardradio.com. We'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. The question of the day is, is the UK government too weak on China? Well, 79% of you say yes, they are, but 21% of you say no, they are not. Well, please do vote in the poll if you haven't already. To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. And please do keep your messages coming through. A reminder that all of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.com. Now, before we move on to the interview, I, I think it's important to try and make something a bit clearer from the last segment, which is we were discussing, I, I was mentioning the role of Confucius Institutes. Now, the, these Confucius Institutes are located in about 30 universities across the UK and in universities across the world as well. And these institutions are essentially small outfits of the Chinese government's Ministry of Education. They are funded by the Chinese government and they are there supposedly in, in the name of 
promoting Chinese culture and language and um, trying to promote the um, principles of uh, the, the Chinese nation around the world and supporting cultural exchanges, uh, creating uh, new events, uh, thing, things like that. But there are a number of very significant problems with these Confucius Institutes. The first is that there are major concerns about actual funding of them. Because they're funded mostly by the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, there are worries about influence and there are a number of allegations of the CCP handpicking people to run these institutes who are aligned with their philosophy. In the UK, actually, there a number of them actually receive British taxpayer funding as well uh, to support their British university activities as well, which is a major, major concern. But even more than that, there are real fears that these Confucius Institutes in the UK are stealing the intellectual property of academics and researchers. We have seen this happen in Australia. Uh, some of these Confucius Institutes, which again are supported by Australian taxpayers as well, they've been installing malware on university networks to reroute, uh, in some cases, very secret, secret and guarded research, rerouting it to Beijing for storage and then back there. So there is a real concern with theft as, of information as well. So I, th I just wanted to make that distinction as well, because this is a, a threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses much closer to home, and especially if you are studying at a university as well. Where they do have these Confucius Institutes is worth making a note of and just being aware that, you know, that those are just some of the practices that they operate. Now, we're going to move away from that now to look and go to our interview, because as we've been discussing today, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, used his big mansion house speech to directly address the UK's relationship with China. Now, the speech glossed over a number of issues which need to be discussed and understood in detail if we are really serious about dealing with the threat China poses. My guest this week is an expert on all things China, having spent many years campaigning on human rights in the country and in the Indo-Pacific region. And in 2018, he became the first Westerner to be denied entry to Hong Kong since the 1997 handover, a move which signalled the demise of democracy in the territory. He's recently published a book called The China Nexus, which offers analysis on China and the CCP and is supported by personal perspectives and his experiences. My guest this week is author, human rights campaigner and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, delivered the Mansion House speech this week, which is one of the staple foreign policy events of the year. And he used his speech as an opportunity to set out what the UK's position is when it comes to dealing with China. What did you make of the Foreign Secretary's remarks? To be very honest, and, and I have to say, I, I like James Cleverly personally, and I, I don't want to uh, be, be overly critical of him. Um, but I did find the speech quite disappointing. Um, Disappointing for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, over the last several years, one had felt that the British government uh, was moving in a better direction on China, leaving the so-called golden era of Sino-British relations behind and, and taking a much more uh, critical uh, position. Um, still not doing enough, but, but, but moving in a better direction. Um, and I think my problem with his speech was there were, there were a lot of words in the speech that I would agree with. Um, but there was almost no um, detail of, of action. So he talked about speaking up for human rights. He talked about uh, defending national security, but didn't really spell out how we would do that. And then it was also sort of motherhood and apple pie because he was saying we were going to do those things of defend our values, defend our security. 
Um, but we're going to uh, build a better relationship with Beijing at the same time. And obviously reading between the lines, or not even between the lines, it's pretty much clear um, that his focus is, is, is on trade and the economic relationship. And I think at a time when the United States has clearly taken a much stronger line, and even the, the European Union, with some exceptions, um, is moving in a better direction, you know, now is not the time to be moving away from our, our allies uh, on this. So I, I have quite a lot of concerns uh, about it, even though the words on the on the page uh, sound sound quite good. Yeah, absolutely. It did give that sort of impression of presenting a certain image, particularly in the lines that were briefed out to the media about how China was creating the biggest military buildup in peacetime when it comes to Taiwan. But as you say, in some areas, it almost seemed to lack substance. But what, one of the things that I found that was quite encouraging to hear from the speech was the Foreign Secretary condemning the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and actually endorsing the United Nations assessment that those actions, quote, constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. As you've just said, it was, it was disappointing that he didn't go further, especially when it comes to the issues in Xinjiang. You know, they've got this huge body of evidence, which really does point to a genocide being committed against the Uyghurs, even as we're speaking. So do you think James Cleverly should have actually gone further in his remarks on Xinjiang, actually you know, make that judgment call and take the step in confirming that perhaps it is genocide as the United States has done? I think he should have done. Um, and in, in a sense, he was it was almost felt like he was trying to have it both ways by quoting the United Nations and therefore um, giving the impression that uh, he he recognised uh, the scale of the atrocities. Um, but on the other hand, not actually calling it out as the British government. Um, and uh, as you say, the United States has uh, called it a genocide. Uh, several parliaments around the world have, have done so, including the UK's uh, parliament. Um, and of course, there was the Uyghur tribunal chaired by Sir Geoffrey Nice, which came to the conclusion that it was genocide. So I would have liked him at the very least, to say that the British government uh, recognises uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, and perhaps if he wasn't going to call it genocide himself, he could have at least acknowledged uh, the judgment of the Uyghur tribunal um, and, and perhaps offered to uh, engage with the Uyghur tribunal to, to, to look at the claim of genocide uh, further. And the government's always had this circular argument on genocide because they say um, governments don't uh, describe genocide that's for uh, courts to do but in the full knowledge that there's no court empowered uh, to do that because the international bodies are hampered by China's veto power or or China's uh, failure to sign up to them um so um yes I would have liked to, him to have gone a lot further and ideally to have called it genocide this circular approach as you mentioned it seems to have spread right right throughout government as, and even with the prime minister's position which I'll get on in, onto in a moment. I just want to pick up on one line in the speech, which I found quite shocking, and I wonder what you'd make of it. It was when James Cleverly said, and I quote, no significant global problem, from climate change to pandemic prevention, from economic stability to nuclear proliferation, can be solved without China. I mean, it's a heck of a statement to make, but what, what's your thoughts on what is a naive at best assessment on what is frankly our reliance on China? Well, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never been one, uh, and I actually don't know anyone else who, who is one to say we shouldn't talk to China. Of course, we should talk to China. They're a major power. 
we talk to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. So no one is suggesting we shouldn't talk to them. And of course, we should talk to them about the issues he mentioned. But I think to suggest that uh, none of these problems can be solved without China, and therefore, we just have to surrender all our other uh, concerns um, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, and it's a failure to recognize, actually, that, for example, on climate change, uh, Ch China is uh, at the moment part of the problem, not not part of the solution. And it's not really showing any signs of being part of the solution. It's it's almost like China is holding other countries hostage over the issue of climate change, uh, you know, saying you need us uh, to, to address this. Um, therefore, don't don't put pressure on us on other issues. But in fact, they're actually not doing any of the things we want them to do. Uh, anyway, um, and when it comes to the pandemic, well, well, I think we all know what uh, what went on there. And um, I would much rather we we, we um, hold China accountable for its failures over the origins of of COVID, and, and at least put pressure on China to allow an international independent investigation, so that we can all learn learn lessons from that, rather than suggesting we just build a better relationship with Beijing and, and um, work with them on future pandemics. Absolutely. And that idea on uh, pandemic prevention, it's, it is interesting. And there's, there's an, a great book from Matt Ridley exploring the uh, the potential causes of COVID-19 and goes into some of the, if you like, a cover up or some of the at least efforts to restrict access to viewing the data on the virus. But on, on this idea of pandemic prevention, there's all sorts of discussions going on at the moment and it, about future pandemics, preparation for that. Because there is this huge level of secrecy around what the, the, the Chinese government's been doing around this, whether it was a potential lab leak or what, whatever, what, what sorts of safeguards do you think need to be implemented to actually ensure access is available for those from the United Nations, World Health Organization, wherever it may be? Because again, there's rumor mill starts and you get all sorts of theories popping up and even somewhat unverified reports of new viruses popping up every now and again. So to what extent do you think there needs to be a, more of an impetus on allowing access in places like China, but also other more restrictive places like, like North Korea, for example? Uh, absolutely. I think I think there should definitely be um, much greater pressure on uh, allowing access. Uh, and I think one of the Problems in this is that when when the um, lab leak uh, theory started to uh, be considered, um, and to me, it's I'm not saying it definitively is correct, but it, it it's surely a pretty obvious possibility given that it was a lab in Wuhan uh, that was uh, researching into exactly these kind of viruses. Um, it's entirely possible, and I, I'm not saying it was uh, 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 it was um, deliberate, uh, but it's entirely possible that an accident happened uh, from that that lab. Um, but when that theory was first uh, put out, um, there were a lot of scientists that immediately rubbished the idea and said it can't possibly be that, and that it, that was a sort of conspiracy theory. Um, and now some of those scientists have, have started to reverse their position and, and, and actually come around to the idea. But I think the reason they were so keen to um, suppress the, the discussion of that possibility was that uh, so many international uh, scientists had a stake in it. They were they were partnering with China in some of this research, or they were they were funding it. Um, so I think we ought to review those relationships um, and either put in in place absolute um, insistence that if we're going to partner with China on scientific research, uh, we we must have uh, absolutely unlimited access, or we withdraw those, those partnerships. Um, uh, if if they're not going to give us that access, absolutely. But just to bring it back to a more domestic level, and 
It goes back to what you're saying about the almost circular attitude that the government has when it comes to approaching China. Because last summer during the Conservative Party leadership election campaign, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak were almost trying to outhawk each other when it came to China. And Rishi Sunak in particular took a very strong stance on China, going as far as to call uh, the country, quote, our number one threat. Since he actually entered office, he, he appears to have softened that position quite considerably by shifting that idea of it being our number one threat to just calling for robust pragmatism. Do you agree? Do you think he's perhaps gone soft on China or has certainly weakened that position? Yes, I do. Uh, sadly, I mean, I have to admit that um, I was slightly surprised by the position he took in the leadership election because I had always thought that he was more in the kind of uh, realpolitik, uh, let's do business with China uh, camp. Um, mm. uh, but I was pleasantly surprised, and 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 I hoped that once he took that stronger position, he would he would build on it. Um, I fear that it was a position taken for. Uh, cynical political reasons, um, be- because Liz Truss had such a strong and, and, and a good track record of taking st- a strong stand on China. He he knew he had to um, demonstrate uh, his strength on the issue as, as well. Um, and there are a number of things that that indicate that he has really slipped from that uh, position. For example, uh, he promised. I, I think his words were on day one, or if it wasn't on day one, it was certainly very early on uh, that in that if he was prime minister, he would. Um, uh, shut down Confucius Institutes. Uh, well, nothing has happened on that uh, yet. I, there was an announcement the other day about uh, stopping government funding for um, academics in uh, conf- Chinese academics in in Confucius Institutes. Um, my my answer to that is we should never have been funding uh, that that in the first place. But that's a step forward. But there's still no uh, action on his pledge to to close Confucius Institutes. Um, similarly, there's been no action on the secret Chinese police stations. Um, there was uh, no, basically, no action on the Manchester consulate uh, mm-hmm. incident. Um, uh, you know, the diplomats there who beat up Hong Kongers outside and and dragged into the the consulate should have been expelled immediately. And instead, a, a process was allowed to drag on, which resulted in them leaving voluntarily um, and and with no um, penalty uh, against them. And then lastly, I think what is particularly worrying is um, the government's uh, real apparent reluctance to speak out for Jimmy Lai, who is a British citizen, uh, who's in prison in Hong Kong um, and who probably uh, will face the rest of his years uh, in jail. Uh, and um, and Jimmy Lai's son, Sebastian Lai, who's been in the UK this past week and, and earlier in the year, has made repeated requests to meet uh, the prime minister and the foreign secretary um, uh, to talk about his father's case and, and has had no success. He has met Anne-Marie Trevelyan and uh, we're grateful for that. But um, but I think that if Rishi Sunak was uh, to be true to his word over um, the position he took in the leadership election, he should be, be speaking out himself for Jimmy Lai. He should be shutting down the Chinese secret police stations uh, and Confucius Institutes, to, to name just three examples. I, w- I would just say that... Um, there is, uh, there are people in the government who I know take a different view and are trying to work on these issues. Tom Tugendhat, the Minister for Security, uh, is one, and I know, um, you know, I, I believe he's working on this. So I, I give him credit, but I, I wonder why the Prime Minister hasn't acted uh, on his promises yet. Absolutely, and I met with Tom Tugendhat recently. He's he spoke quite extensively about some of the stuff he's planning on China, in particular, 
uh, the debate around TikTok as well, access to that on government phones, and of course, on the Confucius Institutes as well. But I did want to pick up on uh, the, the case of Jimmy Lai, because th- this this has the potential to be a, a real flashpoint when it comes to Sino-British relations, because Jimmy Lai, as you quite rightly point out, he's a, a British passport holder, and he was the founder of the pro-democracy Apple Daily newspaper, which was forced to close in 2021. As you say, there's been next to no high-level representation ma- made by the government on, on this, other than, as you say, with the Indo-Pacific minister, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. But the fact that there's been no high-level meeting with the foreign secretary or even the prime minister, what, what does that say about the government's approach to Britons in Hong Kong, as well as the Hong Kongers with British national overseas status? And I suppose an extension of that, what message does that project around the world? Well, I think it's a very troubling message, particularly when you contrast it with, um, firstly, the position other countries take about their own nationals, um, United States in particular, but but others uh, also. Um, but secondly, uh, the position that other countries have taken on Jimmy Lai, who uh, is a British uh, citizen, um, but in fact, the United States, uh, Canada, um, the European Union, uh, and others have spoken up uh, much more robustly and, and consistency, uh, consistently for him uh, than the UK has. Um, and uh, so I think it's it's really troubling. I think there is um, a, a view or at least a, um, a sort of claim by the, the government that the rationale behind not speaking up is that they think uh, it could make the situation worse for him. I think my response to that is, firstly, he's had several years uh, in jail, um, some of which were awaiting trial, denied bail, uh, on trumped-up charges, uh, but he faces his national security law trial uh, later this year, um, uh, and uh, that is very likely to result in a, a very long sentence, quite possibly meaning the rest of his life. So, in a sense, how much worse uh, could it get? But, but more importantly, um, I could understand that rationale if um, they were not hearing from the family or. Um, there was no indication from Jimmy Lai that he wanted uh, them to speak up. Um, but in actual fact, the, uh, Sebastian Lai has made several requests to meet the prime minister, has, has called on his international legal team, have called on the government to speak out. And we know that Jimmy Lai wants us to speak out. Um, uh, so, uh, so that rationale doesn't really hold. And at the very least, the prime minister and the foreign secretary should meet Sebastian so that they could hear more directly from the family what actually Jimmy and the family want, and then they're better placed to, uh, to to act accordingly. So just to move away from Hong Kong slightly, I'd like to ask you about the broader view of the West around the world in relation to China, because one of the West's biggest successes in recent years has been the united approach towards supporting Ukraine following Russia's illegal invasion last year. But in recent weeks and months, uh, President Xi Jinping has been offering to negotiate a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Now, given China's frankly appalling human rights record and the belligerent attitudes towards Taiwan, would China successfully negotiating an end to this war be a failure of the West? I, I think it would, and it certainly would be a, a boost to China's um, uh, sense of importance on the the world stage. Um, and I, I, I'm of course very distrustful of China's um, motives, but also its ability really to uh, negotiate uh, a, a ceasefire. I think President Zelensky is uh, right and and wise to be um, responding to that. And uh, he had his first call with Xi Jinping uh, 
uh, the other day. And I think he was right to do that because uh, he doesn't want to be in a position where he's um, seen to be sort of refusing uh, peace initiatives. Um, but obviously he needs to, and I'm sure no doubt he will, he's been such a courageous leader, uh, he, he will um, uh, want to put Ukraine's interests uh, first. Um, but I think the West must really step up uh, to make sure that uh, any peace agreement that does come at some point um, is one, firstly, that really writes uh, uh, the wrongs and protects Ukraine's uh, interests, but secondly, does not cede any uh, status or, or um credit uh, to China. Um, if China wants to contribute to the process alongside the West, that's perhaps a different matter. But if China is seen to have brokered this, I think that would be a, a bad situation for the West. I just want to briefly ask you about a report that was in The Telegraph this week, that the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, is going to be sending his vice president, Han Zheng, who is regarded as the architect of the clampdown on democracy in Hong Kong as his representative to the coronation next week. What do you make of President Xi's decision and what does it say about his attitude towards the United Kingdom? I, I think it has to be a, a very direct uh, um, and deliberate insult to the UK, to uh, the king himself uh, and to um, Hong Kong and to the values that we uh, that we hold dear. Um, he could have sent uh, any number of uh, representatives. He could have sent the foreign minister. He could have sent the ambassador in London, it could have sent uh, all sorts of other people. And to to choose the man who, as you say, is described as the architect of the crackdown in Hong Kong, was responsible for Hong Kong policy um, in Beijing, uh, particularly during the 2019-2020 period when the national security law, a very draconian law, was imposed on Hong Kong. Uh, that can only be um, a, a deliberate uh, snub. And, and I personally think that um, uh, Britain, the the palace, the Foreign Office uh, should um, should respond to that. And there's two possible responses uh, to make. One is to uh, withdraw the invitation uh, to say he's he's not welcome, uh, and actually to um, sanction him uh, as one of the architects of the crackdown, as as I believe uh, uh, a number of other people should be sanctioned in the Beijing and Hong Kong governments, and therefore deny him um, the right to travel here. Um, but if they chose not to go down that path, um, they should actually um, uh, seize the opportunity while he's here to deliver some very clear messages to him about, for example, Jimmy Lai's uh, case, uh, but not just allow him to um, enjoy uh, the pomp and ceremony of the coronation uh, to the embarrassment of, of the UK and, and everyone involved. And and knowing, of course, you know, the king as, as the Prince of Wales was at the handover of Hong Kong. Um, uh, in 1997, uh, and we know from um, his his private diaries and from other comments that have been released uh, uh, since then that uh, he had has a deep affection for Hong Kong, that he had real worries uh, for Hong Kong at the time of the handover, uh, and I, I've no doubt that uh, the king is someone who who would be troubled by what's happened to Hong Kong. So to to have this man uh, at the king's coronation, I would have thought is is rather unfair on the king on his really important day. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, I'd, I'd like to move on now to ask you about your new book, the, the China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Now, last time we spoke, you were putting the finishing touches to the book, crossing T's, dotting I's and all that. But now that it's published, and from what I've seen, it's been very well received. Can you give an overview of what the book's about and just some of the issues and themes it covers? Well, thank you. Um, yes, it's... Um essentially an attempt to try to uh, tell the story of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, repression uh, across the board. So uh, one of the reasons I decided to write it was that uh, there were thousands of books on China and some very, very good ones, but um, mostly they're focused on a particular aspect. Um, uh, And there are very few, indeed, if any, that really put all the elements together. So um, I have chapters in the book on the Uyghur genocide, uh, the atrocities in Tibet, uh, the crackdown in Hong Kong, um, the persecution of Christians and other religious uh, minorities, um, forced organ harvesting, um, the crackdown on on dissidents and lawyers and civil society uh, in mainland China itself. Um, and then I also have chapters on um, Beijing's uh, relationships with two other dictatorships on its borders, both of which countries that I've worked on for a long time, uh, Burma or Myanmar uh, and North Korea, Um, a chapter on the threats to Taiwan and a final chapter on what the international community uh, as a whole um, should, and particularly the free world, uh, should be doing in response to all these questions and and looking also at uh, China's threats to uh, our freedoms here at home. And I put all this in... um, a somewhat personal context. It's not at all uh, a personal memoir. It's very much about the issues I've just mentioned. Um, but I first went to China when I was 18 years old to teach English in Qingdao on the East Coast. And I traveled widely in China, lived in Hong Kong for five years. And so I draw on my uh, personal experiences of uh, living and traveling in and around uh, China and, and in Hong Kong. Um, and and put the issues in that context because I want the reader to uh, to read the book knowing that um, it's not some abstract uh, sort of study written by someone sitting in a an armchair in London. Um, uh, it's it's written by somebody who who uh, has spent a lot of time in, in and around China, has lots of Chinese friends, and uh, has that personal commitment to China. Yeah, whilst the book offers that very strong analysis on China, CCP's actions, international relations, that personal experience and personal element that you've added to the book, it, as you say, it, it makes it more more personal. It makes it uh, much closer because, as you said, there is a tendency when we discuss China to sort of think about it in somewhat academic or abstract ter- terms. And so to have it in that personal perspective, I think, offers a certainly a fresh insight. And one point in the book in particular, you write about your very high profile removal from Hong Kong. So for listeners unaware of your story, could you just explain what happened to you and some of the international reaction to it? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I begin the introduction to the book w- with this. Um, essentially, what happened was, um, I mean, I had lived in Hong Kong from 1997 to 2002. 
I'd gone back quite often over the years since 2002. And in uh, October 2017, um, I we were I was preparing actually to launch um, H- Hong Kong Watch, the organization I now lead, uh, which we launched in December 2017. But in preparation for that, I uh, felt it was important to make another visit to Hong Kong. The visit was intended to be very low key. I was not planning to make any big speeches or do media or uh, organize any rallies or, or anything sort of provocative. Um, I was simply going to uh, meet old friends and new contacts privately uh, to get an update from them on the situation and, and on their, their thinking. Um, and what happened was, unfortunately, the Chinese uh, authorities somehow found out in advance that I was going. Um, I did get some warnings uh, in the days leading up to my um, uh, departure to Hong Kong. I was actually in Bangkok at a conference and I got a, a phone call from a British member of parliament uh, who's someone I I know and count as a friend. Um, and he had received um, uh, calls from somebody in the Chinese embassy telling him that they'd found out I was going. They were very angry that I was going and they wanted him to tell me uh, not to go. And he made it clear he wasn't telling me not to go, but he was just uh, alerting me to uh, this this potential problem. Anyway, what happened was uh, I took advice before going and most of, uh, well, unanimously, all of my contacts, high level Hong Kong political activists, but also political figures in London um, said to me, they thought that uh, it should be no problem that I, I would still be allowed uh, into Hong Kong and that basically the Chinese uh, embassy was trying to threaten me and intimidate me into not going. Um, but that uh, if I uh, arrived in Hong Kong, um, the decision would be in the hands of Hong Kong immigration, they thought, and therefore there should be no problem. But they also said to me, if in the unlikely event, the uh, Beijing intervenes uh, in Hong Kong's immigration uh, policy and denies you entry, the world needs to know because this hasn't happened before and it would be a serious indicated that things are going wrong in Hong Kong. So I agreed, I flew to Hong Kong, and it turned out they were more serious than we realized. And um, I was stopped at the immigration desk, questioned for a bit, and then put back on a flight. And it became quite a big story at the, t- the time, because I think I was the first uh, Westerner to have this happen. So the Foreign Secretary at the time, Boris Johnson, uh, made a very strong statement. Uh, it was raised in both houses of parliament um, and the Chinese ambassador was summoned to the foreign office. And I always said to everybody, particularly parliamentarians uh, throughout, uh, I said, I'm I'm grateful to you for raising it, um, but please raise it as a way of shining a light on the situation in Hong Kong rather than making it just about me. Um, but that's what, what happened. I mean, it's an, a fascinating story. And the fact that you were the, the first Westerner to be treated that way, it really symbolised the the real crackdown that's happened in Hong Kong, I think, was sadly a precursor to what we now see happening on the island you know, with the national security law, with the just simply removal of democracy from the island. One other chapter in the book, uh, which you, you've mentioned before, is the fact that it looks at China's relationship with North Korea. Now, you and I recently attended a conference in Parliament on North Korea, and you spoke not only about your visit to the secretive country in, in 2010, but also about how China's been propping up North Korea just for decades. So 
could you just expand on that? Talk about your your visits for our listeners, what the country was like, and to what extent North Korea is actually beneficial for China. Yes. Um, so I ha- was very privileged to travel to North Korea with two uh, members of the House of Lords, Lord Alton and Baroness Cox, uh, who are two of the uh, strongest voices on human rights generally around the world uh, in Parliament and particularly on human rights in North Korea. So there were certainly no um, uh, appeasers by any means. The purpose of going, and this was their third visit, uh, my my first and only visit, um, the purpose was directly to um, raise human rights issues with the North Korean regime because our thinking at the time was that this is a regime that is the most closed regime in the world and we should be using every tool possible to try to prise it open. Uh, and among those tools are, are sanctions and pressure and condemnation. Um, but one of the tools uh, at the time we thought that was worth, at least worth trying was trying to see if we could have critical uh, engagement. Um, and it was fascinating. Um, I mean, on, in many ways, it was like walking into the pages of George Orwell's 1984. It, it truly is an Orwellian state. Uh, there were there was a concert we went to where halfway through the concert, uh, 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 on the screen behind the orchestra, uh, missiles were fired off and tanks rolled across the screen and the whole audience, except for three people, um, and hopefully it's obvious which three people they were, um, uh, applauded. And afterwards, one of our minders uh, said to us, I noticed you did not applaud in uh, th- those moments. And Lord Alton said, well, we didn't applaud because we don't think it's very nice to, to fire missiles off in the middle of a concert or at any other time for that matter. So we we had lots of opportunities to say kind of in a polite way, somewhat provocative and confrontational uh, things and to say things that they probably had never heard face to face uh, before, uh, at least for some of them. Um, So um, it it was a very worthwhile visit. Um, uh, Of course, nothing in North Korea has changed, unfortunately, and it remains one of the most closed countries in the world and uh, a human rights uh, tragedy. And China is uh, complicit with that. China is basically keeping this regime alive financially, diplomatically. Um, It's uh, cracked down on people helping North Korean refugees uh, on the border in China. It sends North Korean refugees back to China to uh, an appalling fate, uh, knowing that they're going to be uh, locked up in in prison camps and, and severely tortured, sometimes even executed. And why is it doing that? I think basically because it uh, uh, is terrified of the idea of a um, a different uh, situation on its doorstep. It doesn't want a free, open, democratic uh, North Korea. It certainly doesn't want a united uh, Korean peninsula that is free and democratic on its doorstep. So it um, it's not necessarily um, uh, uncritical of the regime, but it certainly uh, is the regime's uh, biggest ally. It's absolutely fascinating to hear about what what things are really like inside this famously, well, I suppose infamously secretive country. And it is something we, we tend not to hear much about because of the nature of the, the country it, it is and the system that they operate. So it's, it's fascinating to hear the, those insights. And some, something else that you mentioned in the book is about Taiwan. And it's quite a bold statement you make in saying that the free world has no other choice but to unite in defending this country from the Chinese government's aggression. But what do you think that defense should look like? Because if Xi Jinping did launch an invasion, 
would you expect to see Western boots on the ground or would you expect to see a similar approach that's been taken with Ukraine, which is ensuring that Taiwan has all the financial and military resources it needs to defend itself? Well, I think, first of all, um, the support for, for Taiwan is absolutely essential for, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, it's um, uh, a place that absolutely shares our democratic values. It's one of the most vibrant democracies in the region. Um, but secondly, it's, of course, the, major, the world's major producer of semiconductors, uh, the chips that are used to power all our daily um, gadgetry, our mobile phones, our laptops, everything. And for that to fall into the hands of China, I think, would be profoundly uh, dangerous. Um, and, but I also think it's really important that um, the international community and the free world does whatever it can to deter um, an invasion of Taiwan by uh, taking a very strong uh, position and signaling to Beijing the consequences that there would be if, if it did launch a war on Taiwan. Exactly what we would do in the event of, an war, of a war, um, I think... Uh, I'm I'm open to different ideas, and I'm certainly not a military strategist. Um, uh, I I think what I would hope for, though, is um, uh, certainly military equipment and all the other support uh, that Taiwan would need in the same way that we've given to Ukraine. But but also alongside that, certain countries actually uh, having a physical presence in the region, whether that's to engage directly in combat or provide a backup and assistance to uh, the Taiwanese um, is a matter for them. But certainly I would expect and hope that the United States would send uh, ships and, and aircraft and, and, and personnel to the region. Um, I would hope that Australia, uh, being a significant player um, in the region, uh, would do the same, um, that Japan uh, probably would play a role. Exactly what Britain uh, should do, um, I'm open-minded on. Uh, but certainly we wouldn't be able to, and we must not stand aside. So we may not send troops ourselves, um, but absolutely we should be sending uh, in this scenario um, uh, equipment, uh, expertise, um, uh, financial support, uh, uh, economic, uh, alongside others providing economic um, sanctions uh, that would he very heavily penalise China for such action. Um, so we... we absolutely should play our part and should be in should leave no one in any doubt whose side we're on um but i think the response would almost certainly be led by the united states with the other countries that i've mentioned so just to finish then to bring our conversation back to the uk's approach to china because we, we do have to be realistic about dealing with them and as you you mentioned before i don't think anyone would realistically call for just a total cease in partnership with them and just to complete completely cut them off. But I do think James Cleverly is right in his speech when he says that we, we simply cannot live without China and that we need to, and quote from his speech, engage directly with China bilaterally and multilaterally. Now, we, we all know that their practices are abhorrent, but fundamentally, they are the second largest economy in the world and the main trading partner of just so many countries, including our own. So how do you think we should engage with China? Do you agree with James Cleverly that we should continue doing it directly and bilaterally, multilaterally? Or is there perhaps a more nuanced way of doing that? Um, I, I certainly uh, uh, agree with him that we should in engage. And, and I, um, I have to say I was somewhat disappointed that he focused quite a lot of effort in without naming them, in effectively um, criticising the, the Conservative MPs and other MPs 
um, who are more hawkish um, because he he used terms like, you know, we, we can't pull the, the shutters down on China. Well, I don't know anyone who's advocating pulling the shutters down, mm. um, not even the, you know, the most uh, uh, critical uh, voices in Parliament uh, are suggesting that. So the question for me is not should we engage it, it's how and on whose terms uh, and for what purpose. Um, I think we should talk to China directly. We should continue to do so. Um, I, I, I'm not totally opposed to ministerial visits at the right time um, and with certain conditions around them and, and with expectations of what is raised during those visits. Um, uh, but uh, but that has to be judged uh, carefully in terms of, of timing. Um, I'm certainly opposed to uh, for example, the the governor of um, sorry the yes the governor of, of Xinjiang uh, uh, was almost due to come to the UK and and to meet the Foreign Office a, a little while ago, and I thought that was appalling because um, we don't need to give the governor of Xinjiang red carpet treatment, nor do we. I mean, the Foreign Office then tried to justify it by saying, well, he's not going to meet us in the Foreign Office, and um, you know, I, I don't think it should be a sort of um, stuck away in a corner kind of conversation either. Um, it should be at a much more senior level rather than with people like the governor of Xinjiang. Um, and it should be at various opportunities at the United Nations. We should be holding them to account in the various UN bodies uh, and uh, at other multilateral uh, opportunities. So, um, of course, we should talk to them. The question is, what do we talk to them about? Um, what, what are the uh, objectives um, and, and on whose terms? And what we sh definitely shouldn't do is go down the path that we were on um, under the uh, Sino, um, uh, under the golden era um, of of essentially not talking about human rights uh, it, with the aim of um, pursuing trade at all costs. We must never return to that. Um, we have started to move away from it, but not not quickly enough. And I think we should be much more robust uh, in our engagement. Absolutely. And just a final question for listeners who are interested in reading your book, where can they find it? Well, thank you. Um, they can certainly find it on Amazon and on other uh, online um, book bookstore uh, platforms. But also it is available, particularly if listeners go to order it um, from bookshops like uh, Waterstones, uh, Foils and, and other bookshops. And actually, I would encourage people, even if they can't find it on the shelf yet, if they, I'm told that if they actually go to a branch of Waterstones and order it, uh, that will make it more likely that Waterstones will then start stocking it uh, more more widely. So if people have the time to do that, that would be great. But otherwise, they can get it on Amazon. Benedict Rogers, thank you very much for coming back on the show and many congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much to Benedict Rogers for coming on the show. We are dis uh, still discussing the UK's relationship with China, so please do continue to vote in our poll. Question of the day is, is the UK government too weak on China? To vote, visit wizardradio.com forward slash listen to vote live. 
Let's go back to your messages now. And our next message comes from Yasmin. Yasmin says, the more I'm finding out about these state occasions, Nathan, the more I hate the sound of them. You mean to say that we invited China and North Korea on principle and because of tradition, despite their human rights records and the regime that their leaders operate? Can you imagine the outrage if Xi Jinping was pictured standing near our royal family at the coronation? I think that would be one of those pictures replayed throughout history of complete shame. But aside from that, the amount of money being spent on the coronation, an event I am yet to find many people who actually care about for it, is outrageous, especially if as a state occasion we are inviting the worst of our world leaders to the country. Well thank you for that message, Yasmin. And Firstly, the, this, the ideas of state occasions are something every country does. Okay, They, they are nothing new. State occasions are an important uh, diplomatic event. They are an important uh, domestic event, really, for um, you know, na national morale, public, public mood, public occasion. And, you know, it, it, every, every, every country has them. You know, even the state dinners that uh, the government hosts as well. Every country does them and they are an important way of getting business and trade done. And in fact, as a state occasion, uh, if we look back to just September, the funeral of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, you know, that, that was a state occasion. The world was represented there. Yes, it cost a, a, around £100 million to put on. But yet, the, the country made approximately a billion pounds back on it. So it was definitely an investment. Similarly, about the coronation. This is the first of these types of events for approximately, well, for 70 years. 70 years this year since the last one. Now, at the moment, it's costing somewhere between 200 and 250 million pounds, which I appreciate is a lot of money. You know, there's, there's no getting around that. But let's compare that to the United States, okay? They have presidential inaugurations every four years, whether or not the the incumbent is re-elected, it's still every four years. So every four years, they're still shelling out between 100 and 200 million dollars. Okay, we're doing that once every 70 years. And then the next coronation is likely to be within the next 20 to 25 years. The continuity we have from that is, you know, it's, it certainly pays dividends. So we will see a return on investment, absolutely, especially through transport and travel to London. But as, as for your point about having uh, tyrannical regimes represented it's not ideal you know but fundamentally they are still member states of the united nations represented at the court of st james and that's a principle again every country around the world does it and has done since 1815 since the congress of vienna was confirmed so you know it we might not like it but a far worse picture was produced in 2013 when uh, Xi Jinping came to the UK for a state visit, was given the they rolled out the red carpet for him at Buckingham Palace. He had the state dinner. He was uh, drinking wine next to the Queen and Prince Philip, and you know it. It was a moment of great national shame and a, one of the worst things David Cameron ever did as Prime Minister. And again, I think those pictures would be more haunting than having the Vice President, who again is a appalling individual who has clamped down on democracy in Hong Kong. You know, to have him is a slap in the face to the UK, no question. But China still has to be re represented, so does North Korea, and so do many other countries with certainly questionable human rights records. But because it's a state occasion, and because it is the custom and tradition, we still do it. And it's never caused diplomatic instance previously, and I, I'm not so convinced in this case it will do this time. But, you know, I, I do take your point because, you know, it, it isn't right that we're having to roll out the red carpet for these nations, for these leaders. And, 
you know, we don't like what they stand for. But again, when it comes to China, they are a major economy. They're the second largest economy on the planet. It is a, very much a case of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But we do still have to hold them accountable. And I think on this occasion, given the representative Xi Jinping is sending, I would have disinvited them. But you know, I'm I'm not the foreign secretary, unfortunately. But I, I do take your point about the, the state occasions. It's not right to have them, but nonetheless, we still have to have them regardless. And again, coronations, I think, are a fantastic moment of national unity and one which we will be celebrating next week with our big coronation special. But thank you for that message, Yasmin. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result. The question of the day is, is the UK government too weak on China? Well, 83% of you say yes, they are, and 17% of you say no, they are not. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode, and thanks to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. Thank you to my guest, Benedict Rogers. I'm Nathan Eckersley, and I'll be back at the same time, same place, next week. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.